0: Hello, and welcome to the episode five of the Awesome Algo podcast. Today's guest is Aaron Martinez. He is CEO of Headline Inc., which is a company that builds tools for the Algorand ecosystem, as well as other financial platforms and the episode will be dedicated to an overview of those tools built by headline. As always, I did my due diligence to prepare for the episode by spending some time going over the code bases of available, some of the available tools out there and the documentation. There will be some closing notes later in the episode as well, where Aaron will give his advice and suggestions for, you know, enthusiasts coming to the Web3 space and with that, let's proceed with the episode, Aaron. Thank you for being here. You know, I've been an observer of Algorand ecosystem for over a year and headlined it a solid set of contributions to the ecosystem. I especially had some exposure to the pipeline and the pipeline express. We will have a little section dedicated to that, but to kick this off, I would like you to start with a, a brief introduction about yourself, you know, how you got into engineering in, in the first place. And of course we got plenty of time per section, so don't feel constrained or rushed. Then I will try to swiftly guide you in between different sections.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on an episode of the podcast. All your contributions to the Algorand community have been pretty extraordinary. You know, everything from you know, Algo World was one of the first NFT collections, right? That we ever had, wasn't it? Yeah, that's epic. You know, that's OG status right there for
0: sure i, I oh, would just yeah. add that it probably was like one one of the first NFT specific projects. I I think there were yeah. NFTs minted way earlier of that. Right,
1: yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, a project of great quality. Yeah. So my name's Aaron, and a little bit a little bit about my background. So I actually came from the financial services industry in the state of Texas. Particularly, I have a financial services industry company here still, but I work exclusively with Algorand now, so I don't even do that stuff anymore. Yeah, I started getting involved about, I want to say 18 months ago now. So it was about just about a year and a half ago. I was doing a lot of research on the blockchain space because I wanted to start working on a project within the blockchain industry. And I found Algorand and after doing a few weeks of due diligence, and everything, I was like, oh, this is... This is the chain I want to bet on. I feel like it there were like three main things I was looking for with what blockchain to like get based on. It was like I wanted a I wanted a blockchain that was really scalable, something that you know looked like it wouldn't fall apart when it got a lot of traffic. I wanted something that could operate within the regulatory framework because I could tell that you know things were starting to move in that direction where you know governments were going to start being a little bit choosier about what blockchains are allowed to operate within their borders and also wanted something that was really efficient and this is a pretty funny little story but before like really like checking out all the different blockchains i was actually planning to start my project on ethereum and i actually had attempted to mint the what is now the hdl token on ethereum originally But I tried to do it on the weekend in, I think, January of last year when the gas prices set, like, it's some insane record highs, right? And this is coming from somebody that didn't have a lot of previous blockchain experience. So the idea that you could essentially, like, pay all of this money to get something minted and then it just wouldn't get minted because you couldn't. It you and you ran out of gas fees or something. It was such a foreign concept to me. I was like, this is this is the most unacceptable, you know, like customer experience with this product, which is this blockchain. I was like, there has to be a better solution out there. So that's when I started looking into everything and found out about proof of stake, because even before that, I was actually thinking about starting a proof of work chain specifically. Like, but you know, so I was like, I was learning as I was as I was like going through it all about all the different options and I found out like, I was like oh this is this is the one I was like this is the one I feel confident you know putting all of my effort into
0: I see and if we are to talk about you know one of the first sort of motivations behind headlining and basically founding headlining. Could you share a, a little story on how basically headline got around how you got the sort of the idea for starting this company? And...
1: Definitely, definitely. So, so I have for the financial services industry company that I have, I had a blog on it. And I was trying to think of ways this was before I got into blockchain, I was trying to think of ways to kind of like, start driving traffic towards my financial services website so i was like what if i write small like blog articles about current events because i was like that's a a great way to generate traffic for websites to you know blog about current events stuff but i got so interested into the blogging i was doing that i decided to like really lean into the journalistic side of the blog to the point where i was getting actual like like journalist credentials to go to like political events and stuff and then I was like, well, this is really, really cool. I was like, what if I just expanded this idea and created an entire project around the idea of a new type of news platform? So that's where the, even the name Headline came from. So Headline.dev is now, it's a it's a page where it has links all over different projects. But a long time ago, that was actually a news site. Because that's kind of how all this got started, because I, I came into the space with the planned to build a news site and now it's like you know we're building all this like insane stuff on the like the engineering side which is definitely you know i'm glad that we made that transition the news industry is very messy thing to be involved with in general but yeah so i came at it from the the plan and the idea to build a news platform with that was like integrated with blockchain technology but over the first few months of of like learning the ropes on Algorand this was back in the day before there were NFTs before there were DEXs before there was any kind of defi nothing like that existed yet right so you talk you talk about limited documentation to do anything and i came i started building on algorand without having previous engineering or coding experience at all and i learned it all as i as i went so my only experience with engineering and coding and programming is working on Algorand over the last 18 months. So it was, I think, February of last year that we launched the project. And about two months later, we started finding out who we needed to contact, like get in touch with people at the foundation to see if we could get a grant for the project we wanted to build. And we wrote this epic, like 18 page proposal for this news platform we wanted to build. It sounded super cool. It still is a super cool idea, but we spent like two weeks putting this proposal together, sent it in about 10 minutes later, it got rejected. (laughs) I was like, this this can't be right. So I reached out to them they're like this thing. And I was like, i I never tried to apply for a grant or anything like that before. I was discouraged initially for like, maybe like half an hour. And I was like, all right, you know, we can, I can live with that. So it was like, let's, let's do try this again. So I got, so I went back with my team and we, we like seriously like revised it in ways that tried to, you know, we were trying to like figure out what it was that the foundation was looking for kind of, as far as like what kind of projects they are were interested in providing grant funds for at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we spent about a week or so revising it, sent that in about 24 hours later, rejected again. I was like, come on, this is like, what we're going to get, we're going to figure this out. So then by the third or fourth time, and by this point I'm getting to know people at Foundation too. we ended up talking to one of the guys and we were basically just like, what is it that the ecosystem needs? Because at this point it's like, you know what? Forget about building a news platform. Let's build something that's useful for the community first, right? to demonstrate that we can that we're competent as we're competent builders, we're a competent team that we can actually go out and make it happen. So it's like, what can we build that would be really useful to the community and they they got back to us and they're like, well, what we would like to see is a react component library, a suite of easily interchangeable Front end tools for developers to be able to build decentralized applications with. I was like, oh, that sounds perfect. I was like, who wouldn't want to have that? Right. So we're like, let's do it. So we, you know, we put in a revised proposal. At this point, it's only two pages, maybe a page and a half. I advise a lot of projects that are applying for funding from the foundation, and I can actually help them out with their proposals and stuff. Cause I, a lot of projects come out from the same point that I did. Where they're like, let's pack in as much stuff as possible. Just impress them with how elaborate and complex and beautiful this thing is. So I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not going to work. You need to make this bullet points only. Just page, maybe page and a half. Be very, very specific. Have very attainable milestones. Right? Like, just like, you know, I see you have this like whole 18-month plan. Let's try to think about what you can do in three months. And then make that the focus of the proposal. But yeah, so... We made a page and a half proposal for building a React component library. We were going to call this Pipeline UI, and it got approved. And I quit my, I quit everything I was doing with my company and everything else like that, like almost immediately. And I got to work with the team building a React component library without having any previous, blo- without having any previous blockchain or coding experience.
0: Awesome, awesome. And just a little outline for the listeners out there, what Aaron is mentioning, you can find information about the grants that the the Algorand Foundation provides and you can essentially submit a request there if you have an interesting idea or a project that requires funding and if it indeed aligns with the vision and the current sort of goals that um, there are needed for the ecosystem, then you have a good chance to get approved and uh, going back to the part that you've just described Aaron, I'm curious a little bit on your journey to coding. So you mentioned that you essentially got the majority of exposure through building and, you know, interacting with the SDKs and different client frameworks available by algorithms. May I ask what was your language of choice or set of languages of choice? And right. what would you say so, was the most challenging part <laughs> to get into it at first?
1: Well, it was exactly what they said that they needed, which was a React. So I do most of what I do now in React or some iteration of it. So, you know, we do a lot of stuff with Next.js now and I have guys that do all the back end stuff because we have I wanna say twenty something different applications. We usually build new applications every three weeks at this point. But my my specialty is front end and like smart contract, like the overall like conceptual idea of how to build smart contracts. I'm I'm like really, really like aware of all the different like rules and parameters for them. So as far as coming out from the logic side of like, okay, what can you put in a smart contract that works, what doesn't work and how to build it, how to practically build applications around the limitations of smart contracts. So I'll come at it from the really high level and then I'll get with my guys that are the Teal specialists and they'll be like, all right, well, here's what we want to do, here's what we can do. And then we'll kind of work from there to see, you know, what, how to get those things to align and build these applications. But React was the language of choice and the my primary
0: focus. I see. I see. So I suppose this also implies a lot of JavaScript, mm-hmm. TypeScript, yep. and all so right.
1: the Uh TypeScript I have definitely have mixed feelings about. It's definitely convenient <laughs> because it'll all tell you everything that you're doing is wrong, but it's always it always tells you when you're doing something wrong, even though it's sometimes, you know, debatable, right? So yeah. So, you know, I'll do I primarily deal with just regular React, but I do TypeScript too. Some of the guys on my team ex- like are like religious about TypeScript. So I have to, like I have to accommodate those people and then I'll work in TypeScript for things that they're primarily focused on. And then we have some guys that, you know, are religious, but just pure JavaScript and don't want to even touch React or anything. And so then it's like, then I got to work with people like that too. And, you know, it's just good to be flexible, especially if you have a team that's international and, you know, Everybody comes at it from a slightly different perspective. And, you know, my job is to kind of make sure that all of this can work together in a cohesive way.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, and not to sound a bit biased, but I agree with your point that it's important sometimes not to get too religious about the tools that you use to build systems and platforms because at the end of the day, it's just tools. But Right. Mark Cuban
1: has a great quote. It's like something like, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Right. And so, you know, as as programmers, it's always nice when the code looks beautiful and, you know, you know, just like it is just elegant and beautiful. But sometimes, you know, when that's the primary focus, sometimes it can really slow down your development pipeline. Right. So the idea is to make sure that, you know, if it works and secure, that that takes priority over the general attractiveness of it during a
0: early stage development pipeline. Of course. Yeah. For TypeScript as well, I, I also find that very good in regards to scalability. Like if the project is mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. has a really massive code base, then sometimes it's really hard to get away without any, you know, type right. checking that TypeScript. Program. Right, right, right. But JavaScript is of course great for rapid prototyping, but uh, mm-hmm. going closer to enterprise stuff, I think TypeScript is currently is, is a way to go. Uh, yeah,
1: sometimes I'll have guys that will basically like their job will be to convert other programmers code to TypeScript or, you know, converting from class to functional components, because like I said, we have, we have different engineers that have different specialties. And so sometimes, you know, it'll be somebody's job just to make sure that all the, the whole code base
0: works well together. Sounds great. So once again, Aaron, thanks for this. Great introduction. I think this last year has certainly been a great journey for yourself. And I think it's time to talk a bit more about the ecosystem that Headline essentially built over. Is it safe to say that it's been, I suppose, more than a year for since since the start of the company?
1: Yeah, that's right. Just, okay. Well, yeah, the company started officially last May. So that'd be like a year and two months. But the project started last January, which mean mm-hmm. just said just over a year and a half
0: so i suppose as a ceo you certainly do have access to you know ways to see analytics of different tools and the projects that headline provides and i was curious if Mm -hmm. uh, because it's a vast ecosystem and before we dive into a general overview of the most popular things i also wanted to ask on how do you guys usually approach creation of the new projects and what are Usually the main factors for you to decide that, oh, you know, this new idea is going to become a new tool or a project right. in the headline ecosystem. You mentioned there's more than twenty engineers or employees in the in headline. So was Right, right, right. Yeah. We have our team, we have
1: I mean, right now because of the bear market, we're being very, you know, economical as far as staffing. So we're we're at about fifty percent capacity, you know, but none of the none of the devs are going anywhere as soon as the bear market's over or as soon as some of the core things we're building are in production, then we'll be scaling again pretty quickly. Yeah. And then you were saying what?
0: The question is basically on, if you could sell a little bit on what are the main prerequisites for headlines with the site on new ideas or new Mm -hmm. projects that are being built, because I know there's a very large set of different tools and as you mentioned some of the tools are sort of delivered on you know weekly basis and just curious on like what yep. uh, what are the steps for for you guys to decide that this new next idea is going to become a project
1: definitely so sometimes we build stuff for practical purposes because it either doesn't exist or it doesn't exist in a form that we need it So ArcMintor is a good example of that. ArcMintor is a really popular tool that we created that allows people to easily mint Arc 19, Arc 3, and Arc 69 NFTs and configure Arc 69 and Arc 19 NFTs. It's free to use. It's open sourced. It's for the community. We built it because it did not exist and we needed it (laughs) because of the stuff, some of the stuff we were doing. So we're like, all right, let's take a week. This was back in... Let's say may we knew that NF domains was launching soon there was going to be a lot of interest in arc 19 and we knew that there was going to be uh, there was going to be a need in the community for a no code application that allowed for creators to to create these configurable nfts and it was a nightmare <laughs> of a week to build that thing cuz it's especially with the arc 19 part it's arc 19 is is a very elegant Arc get it. It works very, very well, but from a technical perspective, what you have to do to get it to work properly is very, very complicated. Well, that's why currently, as far as I understand it, it's the only place that you can mint Arc nineteen NFTs. Other than well, we added to our NFT marketplace as well, so our marketplace that we just launched has full Arc nineteen sixty nine and Arc three integration. But back to your original question over. What is the motivation or driving force behind the tools or applications that we build? So that's part of it is going to be our need as developers and as application builders. What are some things that are going to make these applications work better? Another thing is seeing a market opportunity. So a good example of market opportunity would be Silo. Silo is a options protocol and options vaults that is in audit right now that is about to launch there's currently not any options protocol or you know derivatives on algorithm are still very nascent and this will give us an opportunity to capture market share in a pretty significant way so that was the focus of that and then hdx is the dex and we'll be diving a lot deeper into that the main focus and the main motivation behind that was to build a dex that was very familiar to Ethereum users because we believe that cross-chain is going to be a really really big story in blockchain over the next you know 48 months or so so the idea is you know how can we make sure that there are applications on Algorand that work well within an EVM framework right so if you look at kind of like the U, and this is more of a conceptually or like you know from the UI UX perspective as well as the way the smart contracts work what are some tools that are a lot more familiar to Ethereum users than might currently exist so mm-hmm. that was our approach for building HDX and so it's inspired by Uniswap so we did a ton of research on how Uniswap works and you know what their motivation was behind the user interface and everything like that we have a ton of respect for the team behind Uniswap and and they're they're an extraordinary project and example of how to build a decentralized protocol that is really true to the to the vision and values of of this decentralized philosophy like they're like the gold standard so we try to we try to emulate them as far as like how to structure this from you know not only a philosophical perspective but also the the actual technical framework of it there's a reason it's so popular is because people people love it because the ui is great user experience is great and it's also you know very true to its own principles of decentralization like it's extraordinary how decentralized it is and a lot of people don't even realize that when they're just interacting with it But here's a really simple example of just how decentralized Uniswap really is. So, if you go on Uniswap and you're going to click on a token that's in their token list, their token list is fully decentralized. So, the tokens that are on Uniswap, each of those tokens, the actual image is getting fetched from a different website. Because when people add tokens to token lists on Ethereum, they can kind of decide where the tokens are going to be, are are, like where they're actually going to live. And, you know, a, Any other decks might just decide that it would be a lot faster and more efficient to build a local repository of all of these different images, right? Of all these different icons. But the more stuff you have that's local within the machine, the less decentralized it is. And that's just one of those really small examples for how like, even in the minutia, Uniswap is true to that decentralized philosophy. And so we're trying to do as much as we can with HDX that's in that
0: same sort of vision. I see. And just, just for the context to the listeners out there, Aaron is talking about a cryptocurrency exchange that was uh, launched, I believe sometime in 2018 called Uniswap it's open source powered by Ethereum, Britain, Solidity. And I think they're available under the new V3 public license. Essentially you could explore the code base. And yes, as Aaron is saying, it's a very interesting implementation on how decentralized, truly decentralized exchanges should supposed to work.
1: Not only that, that, but oh, go ahead, sorry, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was just gonna say not only that, but they all they also like are so good at it that they can do it within the regulatory framework like you the uni token just got listed on Robinhood, right They have you know how like high how high of a standard of decentralized you have to be to pass the regulatory requirements that Robinhood must. Uh, put you under to to get listed that's on there. A very, very long, very intense process. Oh, I'd imagine. Exactly. And this is a dex we're talking about. This is a, this is a hard DeFi protocol. This isn't just some, you know, this isn't just like a exactly. blockchain ecosystem. This is an actual DeFi protocol's token. So, you know, anybody that's looking to build DeFi applications within the United States should I highly recommend you go to the Uniswap website, learn how it is that they operate cuz if you can't afford the multi-million dollar lawyers that they have, at least you can see the way they operate as kind of guidelines or guardrails, right? So for what you can and can't do without getting, without like running afoul
0: of current regulation. Exactly. Thanks for some additional notes on the Uniswap. And with that, I think we pretty much covered the set of the most, I suppose, exciting things that are on, on the agenda for new releases from Headline. Just a personal question, I was wondering about one particular tool that Headline provides and I had some exposure to, which is Pipeline Express. Any chance you could tell us a little bit about how Pipeline Express got started and like what's the current state and do you guys have any plans for the future roadmap? Because I believe... At this point there is still not a lot of, and to my knowledge I am not aware of any, Platforms or packages that you can, you know, install through npm, and you essentially don't need to deal with any setup or integrations of other wallets out there. And you know, with right. sort of this plug and play thing, you have access to uh-huh. Parawallet, Wallet Connect, MyAlgo, Algasigner. So I think it's a really powerful tool. But I was curious to hear f- from yourself a bit about the current state. And
1: yeah, so we built that at the very end of our first grant from the Algorand Foundation, right? Because we wanted to make sure we had a a one of those tools right it's one thing to to create a documentation platform and create these you know these interesting things for developers to use i was like let's make something that anybody could use so we were like let's make a ultra light npm library that you have to do absolutely no setup to be able to create a basic transaction application on algorand and i was like the perfect way to test this is to get a couple of our interns that have never coded before and <laughs> stick them on there and see if they can deploy one of these things. So we have a video on YouTube where they were able to do it in like three and a half minutes, I think. Under five. Like you know, you talk about going from zero to hero in coding, right? So like the blockchain industry is nascent enough and as far as the overall, you know, number of developers in the world. Steve Kokonos made a quote that I love to use when we talk about this like over a year ago. He was like currently there's about I want to say you said 100,000, you might said 200,000, like 100,000 developers that are building within the blockchain industry. And that's, you know, across all chains. Like that's how many, 200,000 total or like 100,000 whatever. But there's 20 million developers worldwide. And until blockchains can do a better job of on-ramping more developers than, you know, it's not going to be possible for blockchains to really, you know, hit the mainstream. You know, that's definitely, you know, not verbatim, like exactly what he said, but that's the idea, right? Is that there's such a big gap between the number of active builders within blockchain space and the number of developers worldwide that we need to find a way to bridge that gap. And, you know, the biggest hurdle for that is because, you know, if you think about a blockchain, it works extraordinarily well. On a very primitive level because of what blockchains allow you to be able to do. But being able to translate that into something that developers are familiar with, because you know, languages like like teal are not something that people are gonna typically interact with in their everyday life, you know, unless you learn assembly in college or something like that, right? So you talk about a technical gap or technical hurdle that needs to be overcome. It's like how do you how do you go from here? to hear where developers are, right? Because, you know, I know personally as a developer when I'm trying to build something and I get frustrated and there's limited documentation and there aren't enough, you know, sometimes, you know, it's hard to find the information you need. It's easy to get frustrated and to, you know, prioritize something else, right? And so if you have a bunch of developers that are gonna try to take a shot at building on chain, you know, they run into all kinds of issues early on. They might get a little disenfranchised and move on back to web two or other types of traditional development. So the idea is how can we make that experience as seamless as possible? Like, well, let's start by building some ridiculously simple to install and use applications because my personal belief and my personal learning style is it's much easier to learn how a program works by seeing it work. Cause then you can start taking it apart, right? It'd be like, you know. If you want to build a car, start with a car that runs, take it apart, and try to put it back together. That's kind of my philosophy. So like, let's build some applications that work, that run. Developers can see how they work. They can take them apart, they can redesign them, they can put it back together. And now they've just given themselves all the information they need. And you know, no matter how good documentation is, saying something functional is, in my opinion, is
0: much more valuable.
1: Um, so that was our f-
0: Go ahead. Yeah, and just wanted to expand on some of your ideas here. And luckily for developers coming into Algorand ecosystem, Algorand is not the only chain. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of you know big guys who has been in 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 the industry and have bigger ecosystems. For example, taking Ethereum and what we just talked about the Uniswap. So as Aaron is saying, examples are there. You could see a lot of running cars already. Just pick those mm-hmm. cars. And, mm-hmm. and and see if there is you know a fit for it in the Algorand system That certainly taking the tech part aside, you know, is, is 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 a big milestone that I believe Algorand will be pushing hard from from next year. Because some of the listeners closely following features and updates coming from Algorand system, yeah. these uh, past quarters were a lot of focus in regards to. Increase in the TPS, state proofs box storage and things like that. But mm. uh, you could start seeing a lot of adoption growing. And Absolutely. Foundation yeah. is setting a lot of focus on that.
1: algorand has been doing extraordinarily well to, you know, to create that developer-friendly ecosystem that we were talking about, you know, a year and a half ago with them. But even Ethereum, though, you know, they do, they do a lot of stuff right. But that gap is still there. You know, like it's getting, it, like the number of developers building on chain industry-wide has grown. But there's still a significant disparity between the number of builders in Web three and Web two, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, if we, if like you believe, like I do, that Web three is just going to become the new Web two, it's going to become that prevalent as the standard for when you're operating or interacting with a lot of different things on the internet. I think it's you know, in order to get there you know we need to make sure that developers have all the tools that they need and, and i think that even on ethereum there's still a, a significant technical hurdle that needs to be overcome as far as that
0: but basically to sum up like i, I really like your point in regards to like if if you want to win hearts of everyone you got to win hearts of developers first and, <laughs> absolutely and, and bring yep. them to the ecosystem so i always yep. say
1: that you know you got to keep your developers happy because you they know they will not the users happy yep yep, yep yep nothing will function if you know that's not there in place already
0: and with that i suppose let's let's dive a, a bit deeper into hdx before before I'll, I'll give this say it's the stage to you, I just wanted to provide a quick, you know, overview of the terminology for some of the users who are not familiar with DEXs. So essentially a cryptocurrency exchange is a business that allows customers to, you know, trade digital currencies and other assets, such as conventional fiat money, a DEX differs from a traditional cryptocurrency exchange in a way, by the way, DEX stands from Decentralized Exchange, of course, it differs in a way that it relies on transaction facilitation through the use of self agreements written in code and those agreements called smart contracts. DEXs were created to remove the requirement for any authority to control or oversee trades perform within a specific exchange. And there are many ways to categorize them, but I will just provide a quick brief overview of three prevalent sort of categories under which DEXs fall. So there's AMMs, there's order book DEXs, and there's DEX aggregators. So AMMs are obviously types of DEX, uh, DEXs that solve liquidity problems using smart contracts. Then we have and yeah, I believe AMMs were originally an idea coming from an Ethereum co-founder, Vitalik Buterin, paper on DEXs. Then we have order book DEXs, which compile records of all open orders to buy and sell assets for specific asset payers. And the spread between these prices determine the depth of the order book and, and the market price on the exchange. And lastly, we have DEX aggregators. So DEX aggregators use different protocol mechanisms to solve problems associated with liquidity as well. And essentially, they aggregate liquidity from several different DEXs to minimize the slippage on large orders, optimize swap fees and token prices, and offer traders the best possible um, price in the shortest possible time. So it's more of a layer two set of solutions. And with that quick overview of what a decentralized exchange is, let's talk about HDX, which is a decentralized exchange being built by Aaron and the team for under the headline ecosystem. So the stage is yours. Very cool. So we started to
1: build this, I want to say in April. April really went hard on it over the summer. It's now on testnet. It'll be undergoing audit in the next few weeks. There's a few more features we're gonna be adding to it before we do that. But yeah, so we started building it in I want to say, you know, April or May. We wanted to come out it from a really, really, really decentralized perspective. In some ways, much more decentralized than many other DEXs. So one of the cool things about HDX is that there is no backend at all. The entire index is on-chain, which means that it's going to actually fetch all of the data from all the pools directly from on-chain. There's no backend. Because the backend, in the traditional sense, is a very not-decentralizing sort of mechanism to have in place specifically because that means that you're not just you don't just have an interface right because ideally with a deck you just want to have an interface and an interface anybody could theoretically build for a DeFi protocol but with the back end you can't just have an interface so our approach was let's make this so that there all there is is an interface the entire index is going to be pulled from on from on chain so that was kind of our 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 strategy once we got, you know, got started on everything. And then we were looking at ways to make it a lot more capital efficient. And so we were like, okay, what are some ways to make it more capital efficient that might not currently be possible on Algorand? And we're like, well, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is that there's almost no volume between ASAs, ASA pools. So you see some of these pools that have tons of two different ASAs in them and almost no volume. Well, it's extremely capital inefficient because nobody's trading that pair nobody's trading the pair that means they're trading other pairs with less capital which means that the the trades aren't being executed at an optimal or are a suboptimal execution so we're like all right so what if we add some interesting limitations in here to restrict certain kinds of pools so you know all pools for example have to be paired with algo and they're like okay well what if we have some what if we also include things that make it you know, simpler, like flat fees? What if we have flat fees in the decks as well? So we came at it from that perspective as two of the main features, right? So they we were like, Let's, <laughs> this, is where it gets, this is where it gets interesting. So we built our initial iteration of it with those as kind of like the core features, you know, to make it a lot more capital efficient and have flat fees. But since then, since like essentially we started on Testnet, we've had to completely reevaluate that approach because HDX is going to have a fundamentally different use case than it did when we originally started building it. And this is, I guess, alpha, right, that we haven't shared with anybody yet. But HDX is going to be, is, is getting essentially modified where one of the core features is going to be bridge compatibility. That's all I can say right now because of the stage of development we're in with it. But bridge compatibility is essentially going to be one of the primary use cases of it, which means that we had to go back and essentially add in the features that we had originally restricted, which was the you know restriction on pools and the flat fees. So both of those are no longer going to be in the production model. And we're going to have to go more the traditional route with those features because our, our like core feature of it is going to be bridge compatibility. And, be, and in order to do that, we need to make sure that, for example, you know, tokens that are coming from their exchange are able to have USDC pairs and stuff like that. And you can't do that if you have rules that restrict ASA, ASA pools. And as, so there's things like that, right, that have been that have basically made us have to like kind of like recalibrate. Nobody knows this yet. So, so people who watch this podcast are going to be the first one finds out that that's essentially going to be the, the one of the primary like, you know, use cases for this DEX is going to be bridge compatibility.
0: And it sure, actually worked out. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Now, I'm sure some listeners are going to find this very exciting to get this little exclusive sneak peek into upcoming features for the HDX. Yeah.
1: Definitely, yeah. So and so, it actually worked out really, really well that we like built it inspired by the Uniswap model, so that it's like really works well in terms of bridge compatibility. So if you have, for example, Ethereum and people are interacting with something on like Ethereum that's very similar to something on like Algorand. That makes it a much more seamless process of bridging, so that's kind of our that's kind of our approach with it, and we have some so we have some very interesting stuff that people were working with in this regard, but we can't go into any detail right now necessarily
0: all right so I think you get a very decent coverage in regards to some of the key features that the EX protocol is going to provide and the inspiration that is taken in, 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 regards to the UNISWA, but I'm curious as well on whether you looked into any of the existing decks being built in the Algorand ecosystem, would you name any of the projects that you can consider being relatively close competitors, or you, you think that the. Also, this focus on having the protocol basically operate entirely without backend and uh, relying on on-chain data is currently one of you know projects uh, in its own category.
1: So we have we have I guess competition in different ways with different chain. I mean, with different other dexes, but nothing that maybe does all of them. So, like as far as the decentralized part of it, Humble Swap actually is also decentralized. They also do not have a backend with the entire. You know index everything being on chain so it's from a decentralization perspective that would be our our closest competitor you might say but then on the ui side probably tiny man would be the one that you could argue would have they're better than everybody at ui so you know they're they're better than us or better than i mean they're so good at it it's ridiculous there's a reason they built Robinhood, you know and like i don't even know how many other applications so it's great to go out of all the stuff they build is just kind of a a masterclass in how to do UI because yeah. they're so good at you it. UI um, is
0: just stellar, and I think they yeah, got like exactly. just six or seven people in the team total.
1: Oh, really? I thought that. Oh, I feel the a small that. team. I saw a picture of their their yearly retreat somewhere. It's pretty big. Oh, maybe uh,
0: but maybe that would be on man, the engineering side. Hippo labs for the tiny man itself.
1: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I was talking about Hippo Labs, uh, oh, the company. the company, right? for because... to engineers and the tiny mm-hmm. man. Specifically. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, they're very good, they're very, very good at UI. But putting all of that together though, oh, we're also gonna have on platform governance too. Oh, so there's more features about HDX that we haven't talked about yet. So it's also gonna have a lot of sushi swap elements. So it's gonna have it's going to have a strong LP incentive system like sushi. So one of the advantages for us is we have a token in production. So once HDX launches, we'll be able to incentivize LP and pools and stuff with the HDX token. We've also basically we're also almost done with our governance application that we'll be able to use in our different protocols. So you'll actually be able to interact with HDX and vote on proposals directly within the interface for HDX. Awesome. Right. Because we're going to heavily integrate the community into the governance of our protocols. Silo, because that's the first one that's going to be launching on mainnet going through audit right now, should launch the next couple of weeks. We plan we have like an aggressive timeline too for governance. We plan to launch our first governance period for silo. Four weeks after launching on mainnet. Because we basically already built the the application that we need for governance, completely on-chain governance too. And we're gonna and these aren't gonna be like silly questions. These are gonna be things that could fundamentally change the way So operates that we're gonna actually put to the community and we're gonna let them kind of decide the direction it goes. But yeah, so we're gonna have completely, you know, on platform governance for HDX. As well as the different incentives that are provided with SushiSwap, and then everything that we're doing on the UI side to make it really familiar for Ethereum users that are, you know, would be coming over from Ethereum and the decentralized index and all of that. So, those, all those things combined are what you might say are like the core features of HDX.
0: Interesting. And maybe to just dive a little bit deeper on the technical aspects of the implementation any notable things you can describe in regards to the higher level architecture sure when we talk about hdx and considering the fact that you just mentioned that it's fully on chain if you were to describe like kind of describe a set of main components that comprise the platform what would those definitely right
1: so all of our in-house stuff we write completely in teal so we don't use pyteal or any of the other languages, we write everything teal. And because we do that, it allows us to, you know, get really, really granular about the, the throughput of everything. It's also extremely fast. So we had a contest uh, about two or three weeks ago, to see how many transactions could be completed in one minute. I think one user and this is without automation, one user, Completed 38 transactions, I think, in one minute. That's quite on
0: Would you attribute that to the fact that the contracts are written in teal only? Because, like, if we look into PyTeal, for example, the transpile code is also teal. Like, what would be, are, are you saying that there is like performance differences in between raw teal and transpile teal?
1: I would argue that when you're writing in Teal directly, you can... It's kind of like, I guess you would say, kind of like TypeScript in a sense, where it's like, if you're writing with TypeScript, any tiny little thing that's like less than efficient is going to stick out to you, right? And you'll be notified. It's kind of like that with Teal, because it's like with Teal, every little bit about it has to be perfect, or else it's not going to work, right? So you talk about, you know, the as far as like... Even how you're, you know, designing the stack for you know how it's going to operate and what things are going to get hit at what points you have to be you have to be very precise, right? Because a lot of times what you'll see with Python is you know you have a bunch of stuff that gets imported into one file, right? Where it's like you have all these different sub programs that are running and they all get put into one. But with Teal, it's one file. It's one you know. It's I think our Teal contract is like nine hundred something lines, but from line one down, it's it's elegant. It works extremely well, and uh, it's like there's nothing in there that isn't absolutely precise and useful in the specific place that it's in. There are very few developers, as far as I understand it, or teams that work with Teal directly. Almost all of the projects you see that are being built are done and are done with PyTeal. There's a couple exceptions. One includes one is Tinyman. So Tinyman writes in Teal. And there are absolutely advantages to it. We also use the latest tool that's available. So like with HDX, we heavily utilize transactions and everything that we're doing. There's a lot of stuff like that that you can kind of see that Mm -hmm. can lead to performance improvements. Also, because there's no need to call it back end for anything. That can lead to performance improvements as well. So it allows you to get to, you know, submit transactions a lot faster than you might otherwise as well. Obviously, they still take four seconds to, you know, to completely go through. But as far as the that process of, you know, fetching and, you know, setting the transactions and everything, they can be done very, very quickly.
0: I see. But I, I suppose another big reason for that is the fact that it's a DEX, right? Like there's people are going to put their stake and their trust and their money into the platform. So ability to have... Very low level code base for the yep. contracts itself is extremely important here. So right, I the, the new the, use the new
1: DTO the Agron Foundation. He made a he made a really great point about how like and how what was it exactly? I wish I could I wish I had the quote. It was something like the vast majority of the projects they're going to be building out of Grant are going to be probably going to be utilizing PyTeal He said it. He said, oh my gosh! I wish I could quote this verbatim but he was like something like except for like you know what did he say like tech techno whizzes or prodigies or something. I forget the exact words he used. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, which will be writing with Teal because, you know, while Teal is extremely powerful and extremely useful at a very, very primitive level, the vast majority of use cases, not only is it, would it be easier to build with PyTeal because you come from a Python background, but learning assembly in general is not. Very easy for a lot of people,
0: especially for folks coming from chains like Ethereum, it's it's a different paradigm for them to learn. And
1: ironically, I mean, we've been trying, whenever we hire new devs, we've been like really trying to encourage them to learn Teal because, and this is something for developers that are watching this that might find interesting. So if you're a developer building on Algorand and you're writing smart contracts, the code language you write them in is going to determine the value of them to an extent. So like, so we not only um, write our own smart contracts, but we also buy smart contracts from other developers. We also buy whole protocols from other developers. And generally anything that's written in Teal versus PyTeal is about 25% more valuable as far as like what we're willing to pay for something. So we generally find Teal code to be more valuable than PyTeal code specific. Well, for many reasons, for one reason, it doesn't require a backend typically. So a lot of developers that work with pyteal just by, you know, the nature of it, they'll they'll design their the structure of the protocol to work with the backend because you need a backend to run teal. So I mean to run pyteal. So even if the PyTeal is compiled, right? So even though it's going to be compiled on chain, a lot of times there will still be a backend that'll do all kinds of other things. But with teal, you don't need you don't need any of that because you can just you know, compiler, do whatever you need to directly from the front end. So it's also has, it also can determine how the actual application is structured and everything too. So just, you know, generally for developers, as far as, oh, also for developers that are looking to do any kind of like advisory stuff, being able to offer advice to projects, knowing Teal would be about 25% more valuable to projects like headlines. So we've talked, we've been talking to different like uh, companies that are going to be doing like boot camps and and are going to be doing like development stuff to, like like basically teach developers how to start building an how to like start getting, you know, work almost like like decentralized up work, essentially some of these different projects. And we're like, yeah, so there's a there's definitely tiers to what coding language these smart contracts are written in as far as what projects are going to be willing to pay for them. So it's just something for developers to consider when they're learning the different smart contract languages, as far as like, there is an actual value that can be attached to the language that it's written in.
0: I see. I see. Yeah. It's, it, it's an interesting trade-off, right? Like for the listeners out there as well, there's a a pretty deep coverage in regards to that in episode one with Cosimo and Zef uh, in episode two from Algorand. And I would personally also recap the fact that I think Teal is, is a good entry point when you, when you start with Algorand. Smart contracts, you, you, if you get co- comfortable with steel first, then, you know, going further yep. up <laughs> the, the stack is, is essentially, should be a, an easy task to maintain because you will right. know how the inner workings are operating. Yep. And I know we are going a little bit over time here, Aaron, so I will try to. I thought we
1: were just getting started. I <laughs> feel like we've been talking for an hour already, so oh, like it's,
0: 20 minutes I mean, or something. I, I certainly have no issues in regards to the duration of the episode from my side. So like, if, if you're okay with going over time at the moment. But on the other hand, we are very close to some final points in regards to Section 3. So, Sure, let's, yeah, let's go to Section 3, definitely. All right. So now that we've covered some of the... And sorry, going back to the architecture because we, we sort of dived into a bit into Teal and some of the preferences in, in regards to the implementation of the smart contracts. Are, are there any other notable components that you would? Absolutely. Uh, so, yep. Highlight.
1: Right, so, so pipeline UI and pipeline, the SDK, aren't just things that we do as developer tools. They are a, f- a fundamental part for how we build our applications. Everything that we build is going, or for generally for the most part, maybe like 98%, is gonna be running off of the Pipeline SDK. Pipeline SDK is a very, very powerful SDK that we built that allows for an extraordinary amount of blockchain interaction. And it allows you to basically do in one line of code what might take like 20 to 30 lines minimum without it. It's essentially, it's extraordinarily powerful. And it's completely open source, completely free for anybody to use, Fully integrates all the wallets. It allows for all of the interaction on HDX, all of the interaction on most of the protocols that we build. And developers that are trying to build stuff on Algorand, if they're using Pipeline SDK or a fork of it or anything like that, it'll give them a, a massive head start simply because of just the, the amount of efficiency that's built into that code base. So, HDX is, is a great example of the Pipeline SDK
0: in action. Awesome. In, in regards to the headline, sorry, the pipeline UI. I, I I suppose it's also something that you guys built, which is the, the the whole design system around around the components and the visual elements. Were there any inspirations for the design system itself? Because I'm coming from my own experience before working for Microsoft, I worked for IBM for quite some time. And I I saw that you guys took some inspiration from the carbon carbon uh, design design system.
1: system. Definitely. Yeah. So that one definitely got some carbon design inspiration. One thing that you'll notice, and this is like something that I do from like, you know, my specialty is UI UX for in front end for these applications. Every single application we build almost has a completely different design system that's based on. Because when I when I approach building a new application, a good challenge for me is like, how can I kind of like build something that's really fresh, and isn't just, you know, like reusing the same standard UI that I've used previously, right? So if you go to HDX, you know, and you go to silo, these are drastically different UI design styles. So with HDX, it's very much Inspired by Uniswap, with Silo, it's very much inspired by Circle. For example, if you have a Circle corporate account or mm-hmm. a a like more traditional bank account style interface, if you go to NFT Factory, RFT Marketplace, it's heavily inspired by Rarible and OpenSea, right? Drastically different design systems, That's and I find it extremely fun and challenging to do this to kind of like see how to how to create these interesting new UI user experiences instead of basically just reusing the same components, even though that might save a fair amount of time. It's just a lot more exciting and engaging for me to see how to use it with new inspiration from something different. And okay. I've done all of them basically. So I've, I'm the, that's my specialty is the UI UX and front end stuff and all of our applications just about I've, I have built the UI UX for.
0: Great. Yeah. And it's it, it certainly a, a very engaging a pr- approach, I would say, like a lot of people coming from web to space can essentially determine, you know, the, the majority of the design systems that dominate all the services on the internet at the moment, and most of them are related to, you know, big enterprises and they all sort of enforce this dome of their own, you know, design guidelines and etc. cetera. So it's certainly oh, it's worth great no- to see the way you approach different projects, but right. essentially, it's, it's also, worth- to-
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's also worth noting that we don't use component libraries, all of our, all of our applications are built from scratch basically. So we use. I heavily use styled components to basically build frameworks for these things, but we're not using component libraries. And the applications that we have used component libraries for, I'll actually go through and remove every single component and rebuild it with styled components, simply because if you're using a component library exclusively, it's your application is going to feel kind of generic. It's, it's going to feel something that was kind of like copy-pasted, right? And if you look at websites, the ones that feel professional or that look really professional look unique and you can't have something that looks unique if you're just using a component library. So even like the pipeline, UI component library we built, we highly recommend for people to fork it and kind of like use it as kind of like a a jumping off point, right? And kind of like build something unique and different out of it. There are some component libraries that we just, I just absolutely abhor. And I think that, you know, they should be not allowed to be in production because some of the sometimes when your entire like purpose when building a component library is to make it really efficient, it can have a, a you can end up with a huge like UI UX debt where sometimes you know for everything to work perfectly together for everybody means it's going to not look pretty at all. And if you if you're building a design system, you want it to actually look pretty and be actually enjoyable to use because one of the things that I've noticed personally is that when I'm using Decentralized applications, or you know, if I just think about things that I use on a daily basis, I am going to use things that I enjoy using. And the how do you determine what is enjoyable? Well, do you find it a pleasant experience when you're interacting with this application? If you don't find it a pleasant experience, you're probably not going to be coming back to it, even if it's superior from a technical perspective. Because it's not pleasant, you might not use it. You might choose a subpar application. You know, it has the same functionality, might not be as fast, but if the user experience is much better, if you feel like it's a more pleasant experience, you might be gravitating to that instead of the more impressive technical competitor, simply because it's a more pleasant experience to use. Things like analytics platforms are a great great example. There's so many different analytics platforms. But if you think about which ones you're going to be using the most, it might be one of the more simple versions of an analytics platform, simply because it's a more pleasant experience. You get the information you need. You don't need information you don't. And, you know, it's just, it's easy when you're first building stuff to want to just pack it with all kinds of features and just make it have everything you can possibly imagine It's just stuffed into one thing. A lot of times that's actually going to go against that user experience side of developing a front end because it's supposed to be about providing the information that a user is looking for without information they're not, right? And so if you pack too many features in or Way it's built in different ways, it can actually be a detractory um, factor in that regard. So that's why you know the UI UX of all the different applications we build is something super important.
0: And when you say style components, you are referring to essentially building UI that is not conventional component based, essentially. Style components is like
1: is like a library, but style- so style components allows you to kind of like build actual components in a standardized way. So like, let's say for example, you're using MUI or, you know, material UI, right? So you're gonna install MUI into your package and then you're gonna install, you're gonna import, you know, button or import title, heading, body, right? Into these different parts of your application. With styled components, you can actually just, you know, create each one of those different components in a really simple standardized way and structure it in a way like it would be if you're importing a, a Component system, but instead of having to import it, it's right there because you did each one of them. So that's kind of what I mean. It's like so, like every see, every part of the application, I'll I'll go through and I'll I'll recreate each of them.
0: I see. I, I, I thought this is referring to a bit more sort of because you know, web is a very cha- chaotic ecosystem in general, and there is a lot of sort of people who oppose the modern frameworks like React and just mm. general opposed to <laughs> component. Like if you build a Hello World application in React and you look at it and you look at the stack. Um, Yep, (laughs) in your browser, like the amount of stuff that needs to happen (laughs) to say hello world in 2022, when you build web apps is insane. It's, it's of course a miracle of like modern engineering that this is as performant as it is these days, but there's still, you know, it's
1: funny, you sound like one of our senior engineers, he's one of our senior engineers absolutely abhors react and has, has like made it his mission to, to build an alternative. So like we have somebody on our team that's trying to build an alternative to react. That does the same functionality with, without all the all of the superfluous code and the the bloat that comes with it. Yeah. So, so <laughs> very beauty, are, in my opinion, are,
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry,
1: go ahead. That are just yeah, they they can't stand it either. So, <laughs> uh,
0: I was just about to say that in my opinion, in engineering, the beauty is in simplicity. So, I, I myself don't come from the web development background. So, like a. I'm a bit biased when dealing with web development in general, but we live in a world where JavaScript dominates. So, especially you in web like space, our, there's a lot mm-hmm. of but you sound like our teal devs, <laughs> that's why they
1: like teal versus, you know, PyTeal or some of these other things, because it's ultra simplistic, you know, yeah, you work with one file, 700 lines, 800 lines, that's your, that is your sphere of influence, right? And you can make that just elegant, simplistic, precise, and Just really, really like, you know, beautiful to look at once it's working.
0: Very exciting. Mm -hmm. And just one additional question before the final subsection in the, in regards to HDX, are there any notable, you know, implementation engineering specific challenges that you guys faced over the time span of implementation of HDX and if any, would you dare to, you know, to Share some information on that and how you guys solve those issues.
1: Definitely. So Teal has some pretty strict limitations with with math. So math is something that presents all kinds of unique challenges mm-hmm. when you're writing smart contracts. And you can end up with something that called an overflow error. And this is something that happens probably any project that's trying to build a DEX or anything that requ- requires heavy computation. So there are specific limits to how much math you're allowed to include and you have to find creative ways to write math in smart contracts mm-hmm. and it can be extremely challenging to do this because you have to use some pretty complex formulas, which have to be written in very simplistic ways, right? You know, cause there's so many things with, okay, when we decided to build a DEX, we had no, we had absolutely no idea how complicated it was me. It is extraordinarily complicated to build a DEX, especially if you're not like, so on Ethereum, you can just fork Uniswap and then you have a V2 Uniswap, right? And it all works and the smart contracts work. But if you're trying to build it from scratch, it can be a, a very, very difficult thing to do because there's so many different variables that you have to be able to consider at the same time because of how people are interacting with it and the specific rules and requirements of an amm liquidity pool and all of those things require some pretty heavy computation so having to deal with that in the framework that we have on Algorand, where you have a limited amount of math you're allowed to use can present some really unique challenges and some of those challenges took a took a fair amount of time to work the kinks out of you know early on the you know things like i think some good examples okay so and this is something that there's still going to be a, a hard ceiling on for our decks, for any decks on Algorand, right? So if there is a high enough disparity between the, the price of one token and the price of another, you can end up with a broken pool. So if like you have a token that's algo, which is an algo, and you have something that has uh, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that. So like, let's say you have a, you know, Algo Doge, right? And and Algo Doge, there are, you know, let's say 800 billion Algo Doge tokens. And so you would need some extraordinarily large number of these Algo Doge tokens to equal one Algo, right? If that number, if the ratio is too far apart between those two numbers, it'll essentially break the pool because so you can end up with, you know, these different rounding issues that you get when you're trying to find simplistic math or trying to find ways to create simple math solutions with complex math formulas within those strict math parameters, right? So like, you know, regardless of what dex it is that you're using, if the ratios are too far apart between two tokens, it can break break the pools. So the question is, is like, how far can we like stretch the the math functionality of this if you think about it on a continuum, right? Because like we started out, we could only do You know, let's say we're going from you know zero to five hundred thousand, and then we were you know zero to five million as far as the ratio, right? And then you know now we can you know five hundred thousand or I mean like five million or fifty million or something, right? And then you can keep going farther and farther if your math keeps getting better and better for how to basically calculate this because you have to be able to find you know more elegant ways of calculating this math so that doesn't so it doesn't break the pool by having these overflow errors because your number gets too big as far as like when you're calculating these ratios and the longer we've been working at it the better we've been getting at at pushing that as far as it can go without breaking these pools with these ratios but that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we've had and you know all of the different decks have different solutions for this so because you can use different types of math right you can use different sorts of math formulas to find ways of calculating how to Make these giant ratios into small enough numbers to not create overflow errors within the smart contracts. You know, so as far as like a technical hurdle, and that's not just with HDX. That's a that's a technical hurdle that we've encountered with lots of things that we've built. HDX is definitely the foremost so far because of the amount of math that's required. But you know, anything with staking applications, you'll encounter some of the same stuff. Lending protocols as well. Mm-hmm. But it all goes back to the same thing, right? You have to use complicated formulas to basically make these giant ratios, giant numbers, small enough, and you got to find really simple ways of writing these complex formulas.
0: When you mentioned the rounding errors, this kind of reminded me of this exploit that was also audited and then released back in, I believe, January last year when there was a hack on TinyMan and there was a very interesting example of how someone was able to exploit some particular property in regards to the rounding of the Well, with the time made, the, uh,
1: Right. Well, with the time, I thing, the primary, the primary thing that was exploited was basically when you're withdrawing from a pool, ideally the program is supposed to check to make sure that what you're withdrawing, I think I'm saying this all correctly, if I'm not, somebody please correct me, but I think it's when you're, when you withdraw from a pool, both of the things that you're getting back are going to be different tokens, right? Because you want to make sure that that if you're withdrawing, you get the different tokens back, but the exploiters were able to set it so that it allowed them to withdraw the same token from both parts of that token withdrawal. That was the primary, as far as I understand, I mean, it's been a while since I've, I've looked at it, but we definitely did before we build HDX to see, make sure that those weren't going to be issues. But yeah, so that was something that could would have or most likely theoretically would have been caught by an auditing team, right? Because that's the sort of stuff that, that audits are really good at doing is like checking those sorts of things to make sure the rules are being followed with, you know, malformed transactions, right? Because malformed transactions are probably one of the most dangerous things for smart contracts. Simply like saying like, you know, as a builder of a smart contract or a DeFi protocol, right? You're going to be looking at it from, okay, how is the user going to interact with this? you want to make an ideal group you know the transactions are going to be you know well formed and everything and a lot of times you'll have these groups of transactions where you'll have different transactions that are going to be interacting with the contract at different points within this transaction you know group to do different Mm -hmm. things but then for an exploiter they're like all right well here's how it's supposed to work well what if i just started tweaking what's actually in these transactions in ways that could you know create some flaws or errors or exploits of inconsistencies with the rules of the smart contracts. A lot of times you'll put rules in smart contracts that say, um, you know, this group size has to be this many and they have to be done in this order. And, you know, each one of those could have specific rules to it. Like this one has to be done by the person initiating it. And this one has to be done by this. That that's the kind of stuff that I specialize in too. It's like I don't actually write smart contracts myself, but I understand the logic of them really, really well. So as far as like setting up all the rules and the Way in which those rules are firing and everything like that. Um, But those are what audits typically. Sorry. yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Those are what audits are supposed to be looking at, too. So they'll have a whole team of people that will get together and be like, all right, here's the type of DeFi protocol that we're looking at. And let's try to, like, you know, do a lot of stress testing with things like malformed transactions and. You know, even like things like submitting this, the transactions in this group in different orders can mm-hmm. do things like they can expose flaws within the smart contracts logic. So I need one tiny little flaw and then you could end up, you know, dragging an entire protocol. That's why auditing is extremely important. It's kind of disappointing that we're seeing quite a few projects in algorithm that are getting built now that are are yeah. like abstaining from getting audits done or they're launching without having audits completed. And the way I like to explain it is audits have two primary purposes. One, of course, is security to make sure that the smart contract has been stress tested by professionals in, that know what exploiters are going to be trying to do to it in a really like intense environment, right? So that's one of the, of course, values of an audit. But another really important value of an audit is because smart contract languages are pretty complicated. The average DeFi user is not going to be able to read your smart contract, right? So basically, a user of your DeFi protocol has to basically take your word for it. They're like, all right, I trust you enough. I'm going to put my real money in this computer program you wrote because you said it's legit. You, that's not ideal, though. You want to make sure, as a user, that there is a trusted third party that can at least verify that the smart contract works the way the developer says it does. That's the point of an audit. It's because the auditors understand the smart contract language extremely well, and they're able to verify at a very precise level that it functions the way that the developers say it does. That's why it's very important to get audits done. Those are the two main reasons, and and we want to make a big focus of ours to kind of like promote projects to get audits before they launch their DeFi protocols and mainnet, just to. Have that extra, you know, you know, security and confidence in place for Defi users on Algorand.
0: Just, just to expand there, I think on your comment in regards to the fact that you don't see a lot of projects or you know teams sort of relying on the audits. I think one of the factors in regards to that is also the amount of available companies that provide audits for Algorand and SEAL specifically. And the other factor is given a smaller amount of audit providers currently on the market they sort of you know dictate a, a price that can be really high for certain open source projects or etc so but of right. course talking about adoption and growth i think the, the, we will see more and more interesting solutions in that particular domain and right. also the tooling itself is going to be improving i think i'm sure you guys have heard of what algorand is building for smart contracts testing called graviton And yeah, there's certainly going to be a lot of improvements in that area. But I think at that particular moment right now, one of the big factors is basically also, you know, the price and some of the companies also provide limited liability in regards to the hack. So it's important for devs out there and listeners to understand that an audit is not a hundred percent guarantee that you're not going to get exploited. It's uh, there's still majority of, you know, importance on the implementation itself so you you have to do your due diligence even (laughs) before on the audit i would just
1: interject that there is a great deal of misinformation about audits on algorithm though we have several auditing partners that not only could offer very fast efficient service but are also very affordable so there's there is a really big like information disparity around what an audit costs on Algorand, who is capable of providing it. And it's not that expensive, first of all. It's not gonna, and it's not going to take months and months of on a wait list to get these things done. We have some partners that we've been working with that we'd be happy to introduce developers to if they're trying to get their protocols audited in budget-friendly ways. It absolutely can be done by very qualified auditing firms. I know that some firms can charge between one hundred dollars and $250,000 for these audits, but that is, that is nowhere near the industry standard. That was at the very beginning of DeFi and Algorand because nobody was doing Algorand audits. But as more and more companies come online and start offering Algorand audits, the prices come way down. And we would be happy to introduce devs to some of these different auditing partners that we're working with that are not only really enthusiastic about Algorand, but they're also very flexible too. So like a lot of times with auditing firms, you just have to start a conversation with them and they'll work something out with you. It's not like, it's not just black and white, right? These mm-hmm. auditing firms realize that, first of all, this is a, a buyer's market, right? Because there's a bunch of auditing firms and because it's a bear market, there's not that much stuff that's getting, there's not as much stuff getting built and getting released. So they're competing with each other. And because there's that natural competition between the auditing firms, it means that it's an opportunity for protocols to get a pretty good deal. So now's actually a really good time to start having these conversations with auditing firms to see how you can work something out. A lot of times they'll they'll like, you can work out deals where you pay part of it upfront, part of it in your native token, but there's all kinds of different ways that they're, that they're looking to work with developers to start building these relationships. Because they recognize the value that these that these developers have towards the long- term success of their companies and things like the price of an audit is not black and white. It's very, very flexible depending on what it is you're looking for and how much flexibility you have as well
0: awesome yeah this is this is really useful information. I think there is a, certainly a a need to reduce that disparity of you know in regards to the price that uh, Mm -hmm. absolutely because because a lot of things has happened since last year and as Aaron is saying it's certainly going down and there's more and more companies that provide audits there so it used to
1: be prohibitively expensive you know and because of that if we had known for example when we know now about eight months ago we would have been releasing DeFi protocols in Algorand eight months ago but we thought as did most projects in Algorand that in order to get an audit done its going to cost between one hundred and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it would take at least two months to get completed. and there's only like a couple of different firms that are qualified to offer these services. We believe that anything that we were going to build, it would require at least that much investment up front in order for it to in order for it to be successful, which was to our detriment as well as to the detriment of the community. and there's probably, Dozens and dozens of protocols or projects like us that were in the exact same boat or maybe still are that think that, you know, unless you can like raise a seed round before your protocol goes live, before you get an audit done, you can't afford to pay for an audit. It's not that expensive anymore. And if, we wish we would have known this eight months ago, too. But, I was
0: actually going to add a section on the Awesome Algo website to list some of the available that is an extremely good idea. in regards yeah. to the audit company. So if you have any mm-hmm. links you wanted to share, just let me know and I will make sure to post them.
1: Definitely. On. I'm going to start doing some, some spaces with our auditing partners as well to start, to start kind of like bridging the gap between the, the information that, that currently exists on algorithm about auditing firms and audits and the truth about it all, and you know what these things actually cost, what they actually entail, what these because right now there's almost like a stigma to where people, a lot of the projects that we talk to, they believe two things a that audits are way overpriced, and B, they don't offer near as much security for the price that you have to pay to get them yeah. done. Yeah. That's a general conception of what the purpose or like that that is a general negative feeling towards auditing companies mm-hmm. on Algorand specifically because of what we've experienced over the last year yeah. in terms of both exploits and the cost and everything like that. Right. But that's actually not entirely accurate. And we're going to be hosting some Twitter spaces with our auditing partners where we can hopefully shed some light on the disparity of information around what it is firms do and, and where the value is and what they cost and everything like that.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. This this certainly is, is, is great news for the ecosystem. So on that note, Aaron, just just to kick off with the closing note in regards to HDX, and then we could proceed to the final question that is becoming traditional for this podcast. But before, so what do, you know, listeners and users who are interested in trying out HDX in the future can expect from, you know, the next steps in the future roadmap? You mentioned you guys are already on testnet, right? Anyone can try it out on testnet. It's undergoing the audit for the smart contracts, but what is the release date on the mainnet and what uh, like are there any sp- uh, interesting points in regards to the future map that you can already provide
1: right so it's not undergoing audit yet we have a couple more features we're going to be adding because of the use case of it being for cross-chain interaction is going to it's going to require some additional customization which we're already working on we expect for our test net to go another five or six weeks or so after which point we'll be getting an auditing audit, audit done that'll probably take four weeks and then we should be able to go live shortly thereafter but be on the lookout for the cross chains integration that's going to be added pretty soon here because that's where that's when things are gonna get really interesting but yeah for yeah, anybody can use it right now it's live on testnet. we have a bunch of pools already set up it's interesting to interact with and, and see just how, you know, fast, you know, you can do transactions and everything like that and all the different wallet integrations and what the general user flow and user experience is like on the platform.
0: Awesome. And from my side, I'll make sure to explore HDX and perhaps we will open a new pool for the Algo Token in there. But to close off with the final point, essentially, and oops, we have a little technical difficulty here, so... I'll we'll give Aaron in a few minutes. All right. So. Can you hear me? Sorry about that. Yeah. I, I
1: had a feeling they were going to die. My headphones actually just died <laughs> about 20 seconds ago. Oh, if you wanted to okay, just repeat sure. whatever uh,
0: So I was, I was just about to say that thanks for, you know, sharing the notes on the future roadmap from my side. I'll also make sure to explore the test net and perhaps during the main net launch, we might also consider opening a pool for, the, for our Algorol token on the HDX. But, Very cool. To move to the final section that is becoming sort of a tradition on this podcast, usually at the end of the podcast, I ask the guests to share some advice for, you know, aspiring software engineers. And this particular episode, we talked a lot about decentralized exchanges, but you can think about more generic terms here. So... What advice would you give for, you know, software engineers who want to try their hands on blockchain development or on Algorand, or just get into Web3 space in general, you know, and explore the ecosystem?
1: Absolutely. So one thing I would like to say is that right now, building on blockchains or building Web3 is like working on the internet in like 1992, right? So a lot of the frameworks, well, part of it, but a lot of the frameworks there. Some interesting stuff is getting built. People might not know what the real use case is, though. So sometimes it takes a while for the killer app to actually be created. So you talk about an extraordinary opportunity. You know, these tiny little, you know, software companies that got started in the early 90s are just massive now, right? Because they got in before it went mainstream. And when you can recognize that there are these technology trends, you know, and you talk about this general evolution we're right at the cusp of you know an extraordinary evolution in web3 or what web3 really is is it's the ability to create decentralized applications or or applications that have enough you know built-in functionality to do really complex things especially in regards to finance so that's why DeFi is such a a extraordinary thing because Finance was something that hadn't really evolved in the last 50 years. Now that's this is a start of a new era for what you can do within the financial industry. So if you're a software developer and you're trying to decide where to kind of like plant your flag, whether Web 2, SaaS, Web 3, Web 3. If you're an ambitious person, it presents an extraordinary opportunity to capture the momentum of something like right on the cusp of just absolutely blowing up. So there's never been a better time to get involved it does, it is not without its uh without its frustrations though, though you know whenever you're building a project as a startup or working in a new industry you know there's always going to be growing pains it's not always going to be an easy experience because it hasn't been done before you're essentially the trailblazer you're the one that's you know that's like creating the map for other people to follow if you're involved in this industry, right? You can find some documentation, but a lot of the type of stuff, if what you're trying to do is interesting and unique, you're going to be creating the first iteration of it that other people can use as an example for how to do it. And because of that, you have to be willing to you know, spend a lot of, you know, long days, long nights to get these things right. But the uh, value proposition that these things offer is almost, you know, unmatchable in any other industry worldwide right now that's how that's how unique of a, of a time this is to be involved in web3 and in the blockchain space on a high level that's something that i would really like to impress on developers that are at the point in their career where they're thinking about making a change or which direction they want to ahead that's the value proposition opportunity in regards to web3 on a on a like specific level, or like on an individual level, I would say that you're going to have a community if you build on Web3, no matter what you're building, right? Because it's a unique point in time where if you're building something, a community will almost find you, right? So if you're just a normal software developer that likes to build software, you know, either plan on having somebody on your team that likes to talk to people Or get used to talking to people, because people will find you, they'll gravitate to what you're building, and then they'll start expecting things from you. So it's important to have a very open line of communication with the people in your community and to really kind of like foster transparency and the ability to kind of interact or communicate with you. That's something that we can't highlight enough. So, you know, what we've seen sometimes is that for one reason or another, the the projects that are building are a lot more focused on building than interacting with their community. And that can lead to a lot of confusion or frustration in regards to the users because there isn't traditional customer service with Web3, right? Like there's oftentimes not a, a 1-800 number or a chat line if you're dealing with any kinds of issues. So just being present and being able to answer questions, it goes an extraordinarily long way, be, whether it be through Telegram or Discord, because... Those are basically the only ways that the people interacting with your applications are going to be able to reach out to you. So, just being open to having an a, a ongoing dialogue with your user base and your community, I can't highlight enough how important that is. I also think that, in that same vein, as a final note, that there is generally a a kind of allergicness or allergy to tokens for projects. I recommend that anybody that's building any project in Web3 should have a token because a token is kind of like the is like a native primitive for Web3, right? Because a token can do a lot of things. You can use it for rewards. You can use it to create engagement. You can use it for utility on your platform. You don't need to sell it, first of all, right? So there's this idea that just by having a token, you need to use it to drive price or whatever else. Those are not important things for your token. The thing is that having a token allows you to have access to one of the base primitives within web three that you can use for interacting with your protocols right so if you build web three applications without a token then one of the primary ways that users are going to interact with your platform is not going to be accessible to them because tokens are used for all sorts of things on these applications so don't be allergic to tokens if the if the conversation comes up within your community that doesn't mean you need to have an IDO or anything like that and you could do it like we've always done give it away in rewards or incentives or things like that but just simply by having it can be can create all kinds of interesting you know opportunities for the projects or protocols you're building
0: I completely agree on all of those points, and especially in regards to the last one, if 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 you are to generalize tokens as you know both fungible or non-fungible tokens, there is also sometimes edge, edge cases when a simple non-fungible token can be used. Absolutely. 100 uh, uh, percent unlocking your functionality uh, mm-hmm. in the platform so yeah it's it's certainly a stigma that is unfortunately coming from a, a simplicity of creation of those tokens and the mm-hmm. uh, large amount of different uh, projects that not sometimes necessarily contain good actors but yes of course if exactly that of word stigma. If the tokenomic, tokenomics uh, makes sense, and if you think that there is a, a need for for a token for your project, once again, you don't really need to sell it, as Alan as as mm-hmm. is highlighting. So it's it's it could be treated as a as a good tool if you're building something that is especially related to DeFi and uh, on the dealing with blockchain and distributed systems in general.
1: Right. Governance, it allows it allows your users to, it, it creates higher engagement as well. That's one thing that, that we've noticed is that if there's a token that has any kind of interaction with the platform, you'll see higher engagement among users because they'll, they'll feel like they have a sense of ownership over it. Even if the token, mm-hmm. you know, represents something that's more ethereal in nature, it'll create much higher engagement. And you'll get a lot of, you get a, a lot of really substantive feedback as well, because your community or your user base will feel that there's an added incentive to provide honest quality feedback. There's so many different things like that that present, you know, added value for it.
0: On that point, once again, Aaron, thank you very much for being guest today. And, uh, you know, maybe sometime in the future, after the mainnet launch, if you'll have any interesting future updates for the HDX or, or a new platform, you know, feel free to reach out. I would be glad to have you as a guest. We certainly don't have a limit on the amount of times a guest can appear on the podcast. So,
1: Certainly. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yeah, I would absolutely love to come back on again. And and thank you to your audience for tuning in and watching this or listening.